Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Father, I ask this morning that you would take my lips and my words and speak through them. Would you take our minds and think through them? Take our hearts and set them ablaze for you in a powerful and a refreshing way this morning. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Please be seated. Good morning. It is a good morning. Um, if, uh, if you don't know me, that's okay. I'm not up here that much. My name is JD, and I serve on staff here. I'm the director of the Greensboro Fellows. And that is always what people do. It's so great. It's a little woo-woo. Which is awesome. Little, um, little update on our fellows. I've got some bittersweet news, and I've got some good news. The bittersweet news is, um, man, these months have gone by really quickly, and our current class is going to be graduating two weeks from today. And so that's sad, but more sweet than bitter is what we've been saying. And uh, we're excited for them. But here's the good news. All six of our fellows have um, decided not only to stay here in Greensboro next year, but they actually want to stay here as a part of what God's doing at Church of the Redeemer. And so we're, yeah. And uh, so if you haven't gotten a chance to know them, um, you should, number one. They're worth knowing, and they're going to be around for a while. And so that's good news for me, and it's good news for this house. Speaking of good news, today is Mother's Day. I want to acknowledge that. If you are a mom in the room this morning, I celebrate you. You're amazing. What a high calling. If you're not a biological mom in the room, but you're just a part of this church or a church or the kingdom of God, he uses real family language for that. And a lot of women who maybe have different roles to play in that play a motherly role in a lot of people's lives. So happy Mother's Day if you are a woman in this house. You guys are amazing. Thank you. Yeah, it's awesome. Nobody clapped in the first service. I wasn't expecting this. What, happy morning. You guys are well caffeinated. It's great. Um, today in the church calendar is, is an odd day. It's called Rogation Sunday. And uh, that can sound fancy or old. It's really not. Um, the term rogation uh, comes from a Latin word, and that word is rogare. It just means to ask. And through the Anglican tradition, what we're doing over Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday of this week is we're pressing pause to fast and to pray, specifically. And over the history of our tradition, that's typically been tied to agriculture or farming, the land. It's really important, particularly if you go to a church that has a farm right over there. So would encourage you to participate with that in us. On Wednesday, there's going to be a processional through the land. You guys should come and do that. And if you want more information about the history of this day, it's really important, worthwhile. Um, Anna and Dan did a really fun, it's pretty funny, quick video that'll give you a lesson. So I'd encourage you to go on our website and to check that out. It is fitting in the spirit of agrarianism and agriculture and the high value that God puts on the land. Our passage this morning is in John chapter 15. That's our gospel reading. And Jesus portrays himself in agrarian language. And he doesn't just do it there. He actually does it all the time, if you read through the Gospels. And he does it for a lot of reasons, I think, but two that I'll just mention to you right now this morning as to why Jesus is consistently bringing up soil and the land and all those different things. One, um, and this might be obvious, it's because it matters a great deal to God. Like, God is actually very interested 
in what's going on with creation and with the good earth that he's made for us. And it's our duty to pray and to be intentional about that. So he talked about it all the time. The second reason um, is because Jesus and the character of Jesus is he speaks to us in a way for people to understand what he's saying. Jesus happened to come into the world where it was an agrarian society. And he is not a God who comes to us and talks above our heads in a way that's confusing or that we can't understand. He actually is interested um, in, communi- in communing and communicating with you. Um, and so it's John chapter 15 is where we're going to be. I'd encourage you, if you have Bibles or your phones, it's helpful if you want to follow along. There will be in verse 1. Um, a little bit of context for this. What Jesus is going to say, he's going to say, I am the vine. Okay, that's where we're going here in just a second. And we're going to pick some things out of this passage that I think are significant for our faith and how we abide in Christ. Um, but I'll just go ahead and tell you where we're going with this and what this message, is, I hope, will be communicating. There's not a single thing in this life for you and for me than developing a deep, intimate relationship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And everything else about our Christian life flows from that place. And Jesus shows that here. In the gospel this morning, he says, I am the vine. Jesus, that's not unique either. It's actually the seventh statement that he says like that. In the gospel of John, he will say, I am blank. And he does it seven times. They are creatively called the seven I am statements of Jesus. This is not just Jesus being poetic or, um, or I'll just stick with poetic or identifying himself, although he is. What he's actually doing is making a pretty radical statement. For the ear of a first century Jew or for the disciples that are sitting with him and listening, this was not just Jesus identifying himself. This is actually a reference to God himself and Jesus' connection to him. They would hear the phrase, I am, and their brains would immediately go to the Exodus story. Exodus chapter 3 is when Moses, they're in Egypt, and Moses is communing with God through the form of a burning bush, right? And in Exodus chapter 3, during this interaction, um, Moses asks God this question. He says, if the people ask, what is your name, what should I tell them? And this is how God responds to Moses. He says, I am who I am. Say this to the people, I am has sent me to you. So when Jesus is saying these different statements, again, this is the last one, but he said some other ones too. When he says, I'm the bread of life, or I'm the light of the world, I'm the good shepherd, I'm the way, the truth, and the light. What the people are hearing is a declaration. I am. He's identifying himself in communion with God Almighty. I am one with God. I am the one who brought you out of Egypt. I am the one that Isaiah wrote of. I am the one who's going to set the captives free. I am the anointed one you've been praying for. I am the Messiah that everybody's on the edge of their seat about. Jesus is making a big statement, and every time he did it, he is grabbing people's attention in a really powerful way. And in John 15, again, this is the last one of these, this, the scene is important. Jesus has been doing really powerful ministry for three years, and he's sitting down with the 12 guys that have become his core group of followers, his disciples. These are men that he's called personally, he's entrusted, he's cared for, um, he's been really vulnerable with them. And just to set the scene as what the tone is like, he's actually just finished washing their feet. This is an intimate moment. And the text is really clear in the passages leading up to this that Jesus knows that he's not going to be with them much longer. 
He makes himself very clear in that. He's going to die, and he is aware of it. And so these 12 guys who have literally seen him open the eyes of blind people, who have seen him turn water into wine, who have watched him call for Lazarus and watch Lazarus, excuse me, walk out of the grave, he's telling you, these, this is the last. This is what I'm going to say to you. They are leaning in. These are the final words. This is a big deal. And so what would Jesus say in those last moments, in this last intimate moment with the people closest to him? Well, this is what he says. It's John chapter 15, verse 1. He says, I am the true vine. Vines were really common, okay? This is not something that's going to be odd for people to hear. They were all over the place in Israel. Um, People dealt with vines all the time. It's not like you and me who read this passage and then Google, how do vines work? Aren't vines bad in my yard? No. This is, the disciples would be going, okay, yeah, I get it. You're doing the I am thing again. I understand vines. That's where we're going. So there's familiarity that happens there, but not just from a social construct, but from a theological construct as well. Um, Throughout the Old Testament, this imagery of a vine comes up a lot, and it comes up in terms of uh, Israel and God's relationship with Israel. So in Psalm 80, this is verse 8 and 9, it says this, you have brought a vine out of Egypt, that's Israel, you have cast out the nations and planted it. You prepared room for it and caused it to take deep root, and it filled the land, right? The vine is Israel. And a lot of times it comes across in a little bit more negative context, and that's because Israel just kept messing this thing up. Spoiler alert if you're reading the Old Testament. They just hit their head against the wall over and over again. In Isaiah 5, God says that Israel has yielded bad fruit as a vine. In Jeremiah 2, verse 21 he says, I planted you, Israel, like a choice vine. How did you turn against me? And the Old Testament is so strong in this language. It's so prevalent that at the temple, right, where they spent a lot of significant time, on the outside of Herod's temple, there was a large golden vine in a place of prominent decoration. You could not enter the table without, or the table or the temple without seeing that vine. Why was it there? It was there to remind you Israeli people, that you are the vine of God. It's reminding you of what your relationship is towards him. So what is Jesus saying here, and what are the people hearing? He's saying something really radical in this one statement. I am the true vine. He's saying, I am, right, we covered that. I am God himself. And the second part, the true vine. It's not by accident. Jesus is saying that he is what Israel was supposed to be. Jesus is saying that he is the one who's going to fulfill the covenants that you've been studying and reading about for a long time. And you can hear this in his language. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, right? He came to fulfill it. He came to do what Israel was supposed to do. They're supposed, Israel, the design of Israel in the Old Testament, they're supposed to be a city on a hill. They're supposed to be a nation that because of who their God is as their king, the other nations would look to and see the goodness of God. But as I mentioned before, they continuously failed in that way over and over again. Jesus is saying something else too. He is saying that the way that you once approached your relationship to God was through your personhood in Israel. That is not the case anymore. There's a new vine, and it's Jesus. I am now the way that you're going to commune with God. He's going to leave, and this is how things are going to work after he's gone. His followers, after his death, they're going to stay 
connected to the vine. The disciples were to stay connected to the vine, and all who came after him were to stay connected to the vine. It's what the church was built around. The church is built on our ability to connect people with the person of Jesus Christ. That's what we exist to do. So what's the primary function of the church? It's to connect you to the vine. It was true then, it's true now, and it's going to be true until the day that Jesus Christ returns. So he is the true vine. In this verse, the father has a role to play as well. He's called the vine dresser. And that's an odd term that you probably haven't used very recently. Um, but again, this was something that would be well-known by people uh, throughout the first century um, Israel. Vine dressers had a role and a purpose with all those vines that are outside. Their job was to take care of branches and to do so to make as much good and usable fruit as possible. That's what they would do. So in verse 2, it describes how that works. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear even more fruit. So what does God do as the vine dresser? He does two things. He takes away and he prunes. For some context around those words, I think this is important. We can hear that phrase, takes away, and I don't know where your brain goes with that, but in the Greek, that's the word arrow, and it's not a reference to just taking things and throwing them away. That's not what's being talked about here. Um, it's more of a relocation or putting into a place of, of a better place for something. So this word shows up other places in the New Testament. In Matthew 11, Jesus teaches, and he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. That's the same word, right? So it's not, he's not telling you to rip away if you're tired. He's, he wants to bring something to you. He wants to put you in a place of providence, uh, prominence. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. So what does God do? Maybe in an uncomfortable way, he repositions us if we're not bearing fruit in our lives. It also says that he prunes, and I'm sure that you've heard messages before, pruning is often not fun or comfortable either. I will just say that in the Greek, this word can be translated as cleanse or to clean. So what does God do? He moves us and he cleans us if we're not producing fruit. Why does this matter, or how does this apply? It matters because these are branches that haven't given up. They're branches that are still connecting to the vine. Or for our purposes today, they're people like you and me who are striving to stay connected to Jesus, but for whatever reason, despite our work or our efforts, fruit's just not being produced. Or you're not seeing good works come about in your life, kingdom work in your life. I would venture to say that chances are there are people in the room this morning that you're in a season of feeling a bit frustrated with your faith, or you're feeling a bit disappointed or confused because this Christian life isn't yielding the fruit that you thought it would. Perhaps you're um, somewhere in your faith, your prayer life isn't what you thought it would be. Or you're not seeing people around you that you've been praying for come to faith. You're not seeing that happen for family or coworkers or friends. You're still struggling with that thing, that anger, that gluttony, that gossiping, that lust. And it's frustrating to you. And if that's you this morning, if you're trying to stay connected to Christ, but for whatever, uh, whatever reason, it just doesn't feel like the fruit's happening, the answer for you is to stay connected to the vine. The work of producing fruit is actually not on us, friends. 
It is above our pay grade. The work of producing fruit is something that God does. The theme of John's gospel is that the Lord is the one who does the work. Our job is to abide. A mentor told me once that our job is to be faithful, and it is the Lord's job to move us and do whatever he wants with us to produce fruit. Your ability to produce kingdom results in your life is not based on your ability to listen to God, to follow God, or to practice some sort of spiritual discipline. All those things are important, but your fruit is entirely dependent on the goodness and the kindness of your vine dresser. That is God. That's who he is, and that's what he offers you. So if you're in a place this morning where you're not seeing the fruit that you think you should be seeing in your life, please hear me. The answer is not to run harder or to put more pressure on yourself. The answer is to trust God even more. It is to trust your vine dresser because he's good and he's really good at this. He's so much better at this than you are. (laughs) So much better. Agreed. I'm going to jump over to verse 4, if you will, with me. This is what he says. He says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And that first phrase, I think, is a really powerful one. Abide in me as I in you. That word abide is um, it's a very intimate word. It doesn't translate that well. In, in Greek, it's meno. It's, it's the idea of to live in, to live within, to dwell within. It shows up throughout the New Testament. It's in the Old Testament, too, in a different word, and that word is tabernacle, right? You're maybe familiar with the term tabernacle. It was actually a place, and it was the place where God dwelt. This word and this phrase, I can't really overstate how intimate we're talking about here. Abide in me as I in you. Jesus is actually what he's doing. He's raising the level of intimacy as he goes through these seven I am statements. Here would be an example, right? He's talked about in one of my favorite passages. He talks about himself as a good shepherd, and we, in that passage, are sheep. Sheep are really reliant on a shepherd, agreed, admitted. I'm not downplaying that at all, but it is a different level of intimacy for a branch in connection to a vine. It's, there's a fluidness there. Without the vine, branches are just dead sticks, Paul uses this language with the Colossians. He says that we are hidden in Christ. I don't know the fullness of what that means, but I do know that we're talking about a level of intimacy with God um, that is frankly stunning. And what's also striking is that somehow the branches have a say in this. Abide. It's an invitation. An invitation to dwell and to live with Christ. What I'm also struck by, maybe even more, is that according to how I read this, abide in me, you're invited to abide, and I in you. Christ has already made his mind up. You're invited to abide, but Jesus Christ decided a long time ago that if you'll let him, he is more than willing to abide in you. He's actually the one who makes the first move. He's more than ready, and he's more than willing. The Song of Solomon, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. This intimacy is a theme throughout the gospel. And friends, I would propose to you this morning that this type of relationship, this type of intimacy, is the core of our faith. 
It's the core of who God is. And it's, I think, at least in part, why he sent his son Jesus Christ into the world. It's for you to not just know about God or to come to church and hear about God, but it's for you to actually know him and be known by him in the deepest possible way, more than we can fathom or imagine. And words are hard to put this into practice, but I'm one of those people, I've got to see it to understand it, right? And it's really powerful when you see somebody and they're abiding well in Christ. In 2019, I went on a work trip and I met a woman that I think really sums this up well. Her name uh, is Yangi Mary. And uh, she is maybe the, one of the kindest and most hospitable women I've ever met. She's in her 50s. And she's just got this big smile. That's what I remember most about her. Like, one of those smiles that makes you feel welcome. I don't know if that makes sense. Like, she had a welcoming face. That's weird. But she, she did. Like, she just had this grip on you that you just felt at home. Um, and Mary... I was pretty far away from home. I used to work for an organization called Water Mission. And so Mary grew up in the South Sudan. Um, and I met her in a refugee settlement in northern Uganda. I was on a work trip with an organization called Water Mission. And uh, this refugee settlement had just gotten safe water. And so we were there to meet some of those folks. Um, the settlement that she lived in is called Bidi Bidi. The population of Bidi Bidi is over 260,000 refugees, um, mostly South Sudanese. Over 83% of them are women and children. The average refugee, you'll notice it's a refugee settlement, not a refugee camp, because we have this idea in our heads that refugee goes somewhere for a year or two and then they go back home, right? Actually, unfortunately, that's not the case statistically. The average person like Yangi Mary and Bitty Bitty stays for over 17 years in these refugee settlements. And what the church is doing within this large encampment is they're hosting trauma healing events for people. It's really powerful. It's beautiful. And they're doing it because people like Mary have seen and experienced some of the most horrific things that I am just simply not going at liberty to say this morning. And so we were invited to meet with, with Yangi Mary in her home and to hear her story. Um, we were there with Water Mission, so we had to ask about the safe water thing and we were, what has this meant to your life? And what we found is that Never before had she given water to her children and not worried about them getting sick. This was the first time in her life that she'd had safe water. When we asked what that meant to her, she said, the water has rescued us. So that was pretty encouraging. That was awesome. Unfortunately, we heard some hard things too because we asked Mary about her story. And what we found was that Mary witnessed the murder of her husband. When she saw that, she gathered her children and fled to a Catholic church. And over a period of weeks, she was able to kind of caravan her way to the border of northern Uganda, where she remained. The problem that she was currently facing was one of her sons was starting to show signs of post-traumatic stress disorder, and she asked if we'd be willing to pray for him, which is a very humbling thing as well. And she says all this, and all of that's striking. I'm there with a bunch of men. I'm like the shortest of the whole group. We're all holding back tears, and this South Sudanese woman is running the show. It was very cool. And she says all of this with that smile I talked about on her face the whole time. Not in an odd way, but in a noticeable way. My colleague is a guy named Scott Leinbrink, and Scott is from Georgetown, Texas. He is to the point. He is not one to beat around the bush. And so when it got quiet there for a moment, he looked at Mary, and he just said, Mary, how are you telling us this, and you're still smiling? 
And I was, the way the circle was, she was sitting to my right, Scott was across the way, and she put her hand on my arm, and she leaned forward to Scott, and she just said this. She said, he has not left me, and he won't forsake me. And I'm still recovering from that sentence. What does it mean when Jesus says, abide in me, and I in you? I think it looks something like that. The heart of Jesus Christ, this vine in this picture, is to dwell within you, and you dwell within him. And his abiding, as Mary said, it will not leave you. And that's the story of the Bible. That's the desire of Scripture. In the original design, right, in the first few pages of Genesis, God creates us just because he wants to. And he wants to walk with us. He wants us to work and to live and to actually be fruitful. In this agrarian praying for the land season, he puts us in a garden to get started, to be in relationship with us. And I know there's a whole lot in the middle, but I, if, if you'll stay with me, jump to the last pages of the Bible as well. Where are we going? We are designed to abide with Christ that's been broken. Where's this thing going? In the book of Revelation, chapter 21, the same author, by the way, who wrote John 15, I just have to wonder, I don't know, like, was he writing this? And he's like, that's what you're talking about. I don't know. I can't wait to ask him. Um, But in Revelation 21, where are we going? What's the goal for all this? This is what it says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This is where it gets fun. And I heard with a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. Another way to read that, the abiding place of God is with man. He will abide with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things will have passed away. That level of intimacy is what God created this whole universe for, and it's what he created you for, to know you and to be known by you. And you actually, if you're frustrated this morning, if you're trying to figure this thing out, you can't function in the way that you were designed to function apart from that level of intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's why he says, the end of verse 4, the branch, that's you, okay, and me, um, the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. We can't actually do anything of value apart of intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. It's the whole point. If we keep reading in verse 5, Jesus doubles down. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And again, I just picture these 12 guys sitting in the room, and this is just kind of blow after blow. I am God. I am the fulfillment of God's promises. Yeah, I'm leaving, but here on out, I'm your ultimate connection to God. I'm the ultimate fulfillment of what you're designed to be. And who are you in this whole situation, people sitting here? You are a branch. Jesus um, 
isn't always super flattering in his language towards us. What he says here is that apart from me, you are a stick. In other places of scripture, he calls you a lost coin, a drunken son, a dumb sheep, and as I said before, a stick. Friends, in a humbling way, we don't have a ton to bring to the table in this relationship. Um, I don't think Jesus is trying to be mean by calling us all those things. He's actually being incredibly kind. It's so much worse than we think it is. And in his kindness, he gives us these images to show us gently. The vine doesn't actually need us. You need the vine. God doesn't actually need me. He just invites me because he's good like that. God doesn't really need us. He just wants us. Branches don't have a ton to say in the relationship. They just do what the vine says to do. And his invitation to abide, I just it does ask something of us. And what it asks of us is all of us. Everything that we are. Abiding and producing fruit, I've said this and it's true, it's, it's not reliant on your gifts or abilities, but that's also not an invitation to just do nothing and be lazy. That's not what this means either. Paul, James, and other New Testament writers, they, they flesh out this idea, like what does it look like to abide? And they use language like we're to press on towards the goal. We're to fight the good fight. We're to finish the race. We're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Friends, I would just say this. Uh, Jesus Christ is not interested in negotiating with you. He's the God of the universe. And what he asks for you, of you is everything. And everything that you do and everything that you are. And it's what you were made for. And we see this flesh out even more in verse 7. Jesus says this, if I can scroll properly. He says this, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified. It's a fascinating idea of prayer. God actually gets glory out of fulfilling the prayers of his people. And ultimately, just to play out this analogy a bit, what is it that every vine wants to produce fruit? How convenient that that's exactly what the vine dresser wants too. Fruit. When we're praying, we're actually agreeing with God for what he wants. If we're abiding in Christ, we're finding ourselves and our desires molded into the desires of God Almighty. Are we people that are praying for the fruit that the Lord invites us into? I would just ask you this morning, what is your prayer life consisting of? And if God actually answered all your prayers, what would the result of that be? Can I be honest? If he answered all my prayers, I would have more stuff. I'd have more resources, right? I don't know what that is for you. But is it more fruit? Is it more kingdom impact? Is it more embodiment of the fruit of the Spirit that Paul writes about in Galatians? If your prayers were answered, would you see more ministry happening in our city? Would you see increased mercy? Would you see breakthrough for your neighbors and for your family? Do our prayers actually look like we're branches that are aligning ourselves with God in the most intimate way? Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, I've concentrated all my prayers into one. And that one prayer is this, that I may die to self and live wholly 
to him. That's abiding prayer and what that looks like. And so again, the room's heavy. Jesus is leaving. He's sharing some big and some loaded statements. I just imagine that the disciples are sitting around and and going, okay, what do we do with this, Jesus? Like, how does this work out? And I think he answers that really beautifully in verse 9. Verse 9 says this, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Friends, that statement, as the Father has loved me, so, so have I loved you, um, that can be kind of churchy sometimes. Who loves my daughter? She's Her name's Nora. I'll ask her, who loves you? And she'll usually list off a few people, and then eventually she goes, God. I'm like, yes, John 15. And uh, I don't want to make light of that, but we throw that around because it's true. But have you ever stopped to consider how much God Almighty loves his son. I would propose to you this morning that there is quite literally no force anywhere in the history of the universe stronger than how much God loves Jesus Christ. And Jesus says here, and we can read it, and I just read it, with a stunning casualty, that that's how much you're loved. You are, and we are, the beloved. That's what he calls you. That's what he sees when he looks at you. And if you remember that you're loved that much, or even just scratch the surface of what that means, it will change absolutely everything about you. And all that you'll be able to do is abide with Christ. Abiding is the response to being loved in a radical way. J.I. Packer said this. He said, to know God's love is indeed heaven on earth. When Jesus prayed for his kingdom to come, his vehicle for us to do that is through receiving the love that he has for us. But friends, love looks like something, results in the kingdom matter, and if you're abiding in Christ, he's going to go on to say that you keep his commands. Abiding always leads us to a place of obedience. Abiding is submitting, not just to the saving work of Jesus Christ, It's actually submitting our lives to the lordship of Jesus Christ. He is now the one driving. And so from an application standpoint this morning, if you're in Christ, Jesus is making some big statements. They're all true. He didn't say a lot of not true things. He said that he's God. He said that we are simply to do the challenging work of abiding in him. And with that, we're to trust God as our vine dresser, that he's actually going to work with us and mold us so that we can produce kingdom fruit. He, he tells us that he's moving towards us first in this abiding relationship and that he loves us in a way that, frankly, our brains cannot wrap their head around. And we're going to spend all of eternity trying to figure it out. And I, I guess for an application purpose, I would just say this. To imbi- abide in Christ, this true vine, what it also means is that you're not abiding in anything or anyone else. It's really popular in the West to try to abide with Christ in a way that Jesus is an add-on for the really, really good plans and goals I have for myself. JD, I don't know. I'm pretty awesome, and I have some good things, and Jesus is going to help me do more good things. And that might be true on some level, but I, I would just say this. Jesus Christ is not a means to an end. Jesus Christ is the end. He is the goal. 
Jesus Christ is the pearl of great price. He is the hidden treasure. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He is the most beautiful, the most kind, and the most important thing of your life. He is more than we can begin to ask or imagine. And our relationship with him, whether we acknowledge it or not, is the most important thing about us. The goal is Christ. That's it. Full stop. And so I would ask this question of you. Um, What does that look like? If we look at our calendars, if we look at our checkbooks, if we look at our journals, whatever it is for you, is it clear that the number one priority of your life is abiding with Christ in an intimate way? If there are things that are in the way, I'd encourage you to remove them. I'd encourage you to add margin. I'd encourage you to make space in your life, physically, from a time standpoint, emotionally, to make space to receive the love that God has for you in a personal and intimate way. And if you're not a part of this yet, if you don't identify as a Christian in the room this morning, one, I'm glad you're here. Two, can't believe you're still sitting here. This is awesome. You're included in this message. You are loved by God with the strongest force imaginable. Jesus Christ came to earth, took a cross, died, defeated death, rose again. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he did it so you too can abide in this God that we know. And my, I would say this, there's no time like the present. Let's do this. Repent. Believe the gospel. You don't actually have to do more. You can simply trust in him more. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. And if you'd like to do that and to flesh that out, you may be looking around the room, where do I go? There's giant prayer banners that you can go to later. Go. Get prayer. Like, just, yeah, accept. Believe the gospel. Um, There's a lot of people in the room who would love to talk with you about that. Jesus says that I'm the vine. He says that we're branches. He says we have a vine dresser who's good and who loves us. He's given us some important work to produce fruit. Church of the Redeemer, I pray that we're a people who connect with him in the deepest possible way. And as a result of our connection to Christ, that we would see immense fruit, transformational fruit for us and for our families, for this church, for our city, um, and for the world through the abiding love that Jesus offers to us. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for who you are, the way that you love us. I pray that we, we would abide with you deeply, that we would never stop looking to you as the most important relationship as to who we are. Would you give us grace today, Jesus? We just want to walk out of here knowing you and loving you a little bit more. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.